Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Dave and Becky and Vicky and Bruce and Wendy for that opening, for just drawing our, our hearts and our thoughts to the Lord Jesus this morning. Indeed, it's so amazing, so so amazing that the God who created and sustains everything we see, everything we don't see, created and sustains us, and he loves us so much that he created a way of salvation for us, the one we're singing about, the one we can put our trust in. This morning, oh, it's there, good. This morning we'll be looking at the servant's mission in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 49, verses 1 to 7. And uh, I will have some of the, some of the uh, scripture verses up on the screen if you're looking for them. And uh, if you need a Bible, there's some brown ones just in the seats around you. So this passage builds on the message that Bruce Royal shared last week, where Bruce introduced the servant. It's the second of what we refer to as the servant songs in the latter part of Isaiah. Some people call them poems, some call them oracles. Um, when we look at the poetry part, I know I myself need to study more to really understand the Hebrew poetry, the way that these verses are written. So this morning we're going to look at the second song, which is focused on the servant's mission this morning. And the next speakers will look at the servant's obedience and his suffering and glory. So again, last week Bruce talked about one. This morning we'll talk about the second. Uh, Dave Jay is going to speak to us on the third. And then we'll... Um, the servant's suffering and glory will be broken up into three different messages. So a bit of context for our message this morning. So last week, Bruce talked to us, talked to us about hope, comfort, justice, and the model for servanthood that we're to follow. And he noted that the understanding of Jesus as a suffering servant and sovereign Lord wasn't really clear at the time of Isaiah. It wasn't clear until didn't become clear until the New Testament when Jesus came along and showed them that he indeed is the one that was prophesied about. And and when you look at the timeline, it's amazing because that's hundreds of years after this is written. Isn't God's word amazing? And just as there were questions then as to who it was, there's questions now, there's a lot of questions now as to who the servant is that Isaiah talks about. And we'll look into that in a bit. There are references to Jesus in this passage that others have claimed for themselves. And the servant's mission here is to redeem the nation of Israel and to save the other nations of the world. This will be done by him showing God's love, God's grace, his goodness, and God's sovereignty over everything. Just before, in the previous chapter, in chapter 48, God's rebuking the Israelites for their stubbornness of heart. He reminds them that he's in charge over everything and everyone. In Isaiah 48, verses 16 to 17, we read, Come near and listen to this. From the first announcement, I have not spoken in secret. At the time it happens, I am there. And now the Sovereign Lord has sent me his spirit. Sorry, with his spirit. And this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. 
I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. And unfortunately, the vast majority of the people in Isaiah's time didn't follow God's directions. Let's just commit our time in this message to the Lord, shall we? Our Father in heaven, indeed, we just marvel at your love and your goodness. Father, you are so awesome. You're perfect. You're holy. You know everything. You're in charge of everything. And what's so amazing is you love ones like us, ones that are so small and insignificant compared to you. And we just thank you for that. We marvel at that. We thank you, Father, for your word and your spirit. And just pray that you would, I ask that you would guide me to bring forth your message, that you would open all of our hearts. Teach us, Lord, the way that you want us to go. And may you be glorified. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As I read the passage, through the passage, you may want to look for verses where there's similar words, but they have the same thought. And so what they're done, it's done purposely, and it's meant to just provide some emphasis on what that thought is. And this is part of the Hebrew poetry, or structure in the Hebrew poetry, where you've got different thoughts or words coming together to reinforce the point. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hands, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring, back, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So let's take a, a closer look at this passage. In verse 1, the section starts with this. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Listen to me. Whoops. Hear this. Same kind of similar thoughts put together. Now the islands that he's talking about, sometimes referred to as coastlands, may refer to the Gentile nations or they may refer to the Jewish people who are dispersed and outside the nation of Israel. The distant nations are the lands of the Gentiles. Those of us who don't have that Jewish ancestry. Now, I know, somebody might tell me that if we go back far enough, we all have the same 
ancestry. And yes, I'm not going to dispute that point. Um, God did, however, make us different. Some people are Jewish and some of us aren't. And those of us who aren't, uh, most of us here, should be thankful for the Jewish people. Now, I'm not sure when I look around uh, how many of you have decided on your future children's name before they even conceived, before you even know who your spe- that special person is that you want to share your life with. Let alone, not only just what their names are, but what their future is going to be, what they're going to do with their lives. Anyone thought that far ahead? No? Okay. Just checking. Now, but God had those things planned out for Jesus so far in advance. Before I was born, the Lord called me from my birth. He has made mention of my name. So before he was even conceived, in the Old Testament, the prophet Micah was talking about him and said, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will be the ruler of Israel whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And the name of Jesus was foretold even before his birth. We know this from when Mary was, when the, sorry, when the angel Gabriel told Mary that she was going to have a child and she was going to give him the name Jesus. So way back when he was called, he was spoken of. I should note, there are other people who have claimed to have been called by the gods and even considered themselves gods. For example, Mesopotamian kings claimed the gods had destined them for kingship. So, in this map, Mesopotamia is over here. Sorry, Israel is over here. Mesopotamia is over here. And it's, it refers to the, the land between the rivers. Namely, in this case, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. And covers much of the area that we now know as the Middle East. So around the time of Isaiah, the lands were being fought over by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and later Romans. But uh, there was always battles, there was always wars over this area and people looking to take over the different areas in this region. Now one of the Mesopotamian kings, Ashurbanipal, uh, claimed to have been called by the gods to kingship. And he said he was formed inside his mother's womb to shepherd the land of Assyria. Nebuchadnezzar ruled the Babylonian Empire somewhere around 614 B.C., around the the time of uh, Isaiah was writing. Cyrus, king of Persia, also reigned around this time. Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus are both mentioned in the Bible. They both stated that the Babylonian god Marduk, or Marduk, determined their kingship. Now, I don't know why these kings felt they were called by gods or that if indeed they were. Uh, Some of us can probably think of examples where individuals have claimed God told them to do something and usually it ended up with pretty bad results. Now, these kings, though, certainly felt that they deserved the position and the status of king. You've likely heard it said that Power corrupts, and absolutely power corrupts absolutely. I'm sure their egos took over at times, and they became larger than life, to the point where they're probably legends, at least legends in their own minds. 
probably an easy trap to fall into when you realize just the power and the authority that you had as a king. What you said went. What they didn't realize was the one was that God was really the one in control. For example, Isaiah prophesied how God would use Cyrus in chapter 45 to deal with the nation of Israel. It says that Cyrus was anointed or called by God. He just didn't know he was appointed by the true God. Never mind this small g, false god, Marduk. So this is what the Lord says about Cyrus in Isaiah 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, For the sake of my servant Jacob, Israel my chosen, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is none other. In the second verse, we read that he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. And there may be a play on words here. As one of the Hebrew words for mouth is edge. And the root word from that comes from the same word that refers to cutting or breaking or scattering something. Regardless, we know that God's word has power. God spoke the world into creation. God said, let there be light. And it was so. He said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. We know that the same power will be expressed through the words that the servants speak. As we read in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to the dividing soul of spirit and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the hearts and attitudes. Sorry, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The word is given so people can be saved, so people can enter into a love relationship with God. It also tells us, though, what's going to happen for those who reject the offer. In the shadow of his hand he hid me and concealed me in his quiver. Again, here we see that repetition. It's likely to a time, this is likely referring to a time when we didn't read about Jesus, that time before his public ministry. God was preparing Jesus for just the right time when he would reveal him to the masses. And the references to sharpened sword and polished arrow also just suggest that there was planning and preparation involved. The tools were meant to be used when the time was right. If you're like me, you rarely understand some of God's timing. Why he does or doesn't do things in our lives at the time we think it should happen. But we know that in his infinite wisdom and for his purposes, he does it in a way that will bring glory and honor to him and draw people closer to him. Something that this concealment or hiding in, hiding in the quiver, refers to that time we're living in now and that the servant will be revealed when he comes back again. In the book of Revelation, John tells of a vision where someone like the Son of Man 
had a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Verse 3 said, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Now the Bible tells us that the servant is Israel in this verse. And I came across, I'm not sure, five, six possibilities for what servant Israel might be. Who is the servant Israel? Some things means that it's the nation of Israel, the whole nation of Israel. There are other references in Isaiah to the servant being referred to as Israel. For example, in 40, verse, sorry, chapter 41, But you, O Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Others think it's a subset. Others think it's just the true believers within Israel, within the nation. In Isaiah's time, and even up to, up to the time of Jesus, the people weren't expecting us. They were expecting a Messiah who would come from the line of David. And they were expecting a Messiah who would be publicly anointed as king. Now, Isaiah doesn't expressly say these things in this passage about Jesus. However, if you look at verse, chapter 42, verse 1, we get a better clue as to who the servant is. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. I'm going to suggest, if we put this passage in its broader context in the Bible, it's clear that the servant referred to here is Jesus. We have a triune, a triune God. In other words, our God is three in one. Our God is Father, He's Son, and He's the Holy Spirit. Each of the persons of the Godhead has a slightly different role. And God the Son is being committed, commended as a servant here. It's interesting. So, if the servant is Jesus, then we're reading that the servant has labored to no purpose. He spent his strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand. And my reward is with my God. God had set up covenants or contracts or deals with the people. He had provided them with rules for living. And they knew the importance of keeping them. Literally, of binding them, attaching them to them and carrying them around with them. They knew the importance of teaching them to their children and living by them. God revealed himself to these people in different ways. He sent prophets to them. The nation should have been the envy of those around it. And yet, in so many ways, the nation failed. The nation turned away from God in so many ways. Now, so if the servant is Jesus then, was his labor without purpose? Did he indeed spend his strength in vain? Well, consider the time Jesus spent among the people. What did he do? He healed the sick. He opened the blind, sorry, the eyes of the blind. He fed thousands with a few loaves and a few fish. He knew what people were thinking, even if they didn't come out and say it. He knew what people had done in the past. He rid people of demons. He raised people from the dead 
And he, being one with God, forgave people of their sins. Jesus died and conquered death. He fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. And yet, many still refuse to believe. Now, Jesus wasn't pleased with the hardness of people's hearts. And in Matthew and Luke, we get a glimpse of his disappointment. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under his wings. But you were not willing. Did he really fail? I don't think so. The second part of verse 4 notes, Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. The reference to reward is interesting because it's translated differently. It's translated judgment, justice, recompense in different versions. Before he was born, Isaiah noted Jesus will press on in obedience to his Father's will, trusting that his Father would be pleased. And we see evidence of this here in Isaiah 49, 50, sorry, um, 50 and 53. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. From verse 53. Read, After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he has poured his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He says in verse 5, He who formed me in the womb to be a servant will bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel for himself. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord and God has been my strength. So we're told that the servant is going to be honored by his father, that he relies on his father for strength to fulfill the mission and starts off as bringing Jacob back and gathering Israel. So the reference to Jacob as a reference is the same as the reference to the nation of Israel. In Genesis 25, Rebekah was pregnant with twins and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. The younger was Jacob. Jacob was the father of a great nation. And later, in Genesis 32, we realize that Jacob's name was changed to Israel. The man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and men and have overcome. So Jesus will bring about a spiritual restoration where the nation of Israel will again acknowledge God as the true God and will acknowledge his son. And we know from other verses that Jesus will set the captives free. And the captivity isn't necessarily a physical prison, so to speak, although it could be for some. But it's a release from captivity to sin. And some also believe that Jesus will bring a physical and or a political restoration. In verse 6, he says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept? 
I will make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring forth my salvation to the ends of the earth. So just, uh, so what I've, oh, sorry, it doesn't show very well. What I've tried to do is just reflect, make a little inset. inset. And so he, God's looking saying, you know what? You're going to restore the nation of Israel, which is just a little dot in here. But that's child's play. You're going to bring my word. You're going to bring glory to the Gentiles, to the whole nations, to the whole earth. And I was kind of looking at it thinking, you know, yeah, here's Israel and here's the rest of the world. And this is God's plan. Have you ever heard of under committing and over delivering? You know, you set the bar so low that you're guaranteed to, to surpass it. So even if you do a lousy job, you're going to meet the bar. But if you do a half-decent job, you're going to look like a rock star. God doesn't work that way. He sets his standards high, doesn't he? Really high. So, not only is he looking just to the nation of Israel, but he's going to reach to the Gentiles as well. His salvation will reach out to the ends of the earth. Verse 7 says, This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because the Lord is faithful. The Holy One of Israel has chosen you. The Apostle Luke writes that Peter, James, and John were Jesus when he was transfigured on the mountain. Luke 9.34 says, While he, that is Peter, was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as he entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Jesus certainly wasn't embraced and certainly wasn't loved by everyone 2,000 years ago. And he certainly isn't embraced and loved by everybody now, is he? As the text notes, text notes, he was despised and abhorred by the nation, both by some in Israel and still by many today. And uh, as we noted earlier, others will be speaking uh, more on these passages because they get into other people's talks. So I won't get further into those. We do get that. But God noted Jesus' mission will be successful. Despite the opposition, he's going to succeed in his mission. We get a glimpse of this in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul notes that there's going to become a time when at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let's pull this all together and consider what this means for us. The servant's mission is to redeem the nation of Israel and save the other nations of the world. This will be done by him showing God's love, grace, and his sovereignty over everything. He's going to accomplish it in part by his coming to earth, by living and dying to rise again. We noted that it's important to look at verses in their broader context to understand their true meaning. Again, we saw this when we were looking at verse 3 and who the servant was, who Israel was referred to. And I noted a few of the linkages to other parts in the Bible 
not just to show how it fits so incredibly well, but to point, sorry, take that fact and point it out so that we can rest assured that we can, we can believe what the Bible says. We can believe what it says about Jesus. It's not just some mishmash of a, a bunch of different writings. The whole thing flows together. The whole thing points to Jesus. And if you haven't done so, and you're not sure, but I'd encourage you just to check that out for yourself. We know that others have made similar claims to what Isaiah prophesied about Jesus. For example, how they were called gods, sorry, called by their gods. How they felt their mission actually was to release captives and bring their people together. And when I first looked at this, I thought, oh, isn't that weird? Then I thought, well, it kind of makes sense. If you're the king, part of your job is to bring your, your kingship or your kingdom together. However, there is still that incredible difference where they thought they were called by a small g God. What they didn't realize is their lives, everything that they planned, everything they did was under the umbrella of the one true God, the one that we're looking at this morning. Although Isaiah doesn't expressly tell us that the servant will come from the line of David, that he's going to be formally anointed as king, Jesus comes along and shows, indeed, that he is the Messiah. He fulfilled the prophecies in the Bible. And when you think of it, the probabilities of somebody doing even a fraction of those is just mind-boggling. Jesus is the only way. He's the truth. He's the life. There's no other way to the Father but by trusting in Jesus. If you haven't done so already, I'd urge you to check these things out for yourself. Put your trust in Jesus as your own Lord and Savior. And I'd also invite, if anyone's wondering about that, and if you think it doesn't make sense or wondering why, I'd be quite happy to talk to you about that. So what does this mean? We need to study God's word to understand what it's saying. See those linkages for ourselves. It's about knowing Jesus personally, making that commitment. It's also about walking the talk. We can sing about it, sing wonderful songs and hymns and praises. We can read about it. But when we go out that door at 12 o'clock or 12.30, whatever time we go out that door, is that all left behind? Are we going to do what we pray for Jesus to do in our lives, the Spirit to lead in our lives? Are we going to do what we sing about? Are we going to walk that talk? If we call ourselves Christians, we're calling ourselves disciples or followers. And we call Jesus Lord and Savior. But if he's Lord, he has to be Lord of our lives. And so his priorities become our priorities. When Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to the disciples and left them with instructions, or in other words, their mission. Although the words are a little bit different in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I believe the message is the same. It's kind of summed up here from Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. He said, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Mark said it slightly differently. He said, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Luke talked about repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are invited to speak again in the synagogue. In verses 45 to 47, we read, When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. When, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Last week, we were reminded of some of Paul's message to the Philippians where he reminded them to have the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus. So if you do know the Lord Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you and I need to live out that claim and really let him be Lord of our lives. The work is not yet complete and we're all to be out on that mission field. It doesn't mean we all need to pack our bags and head off to some faraway country. Our mission field could be at home, at work, at school, somewhere in the city, or it could be somewhere else in the world. We need to stay close to God if we're going to do this. We need to study, and we need to be able to explain what we believe and why we believe it. We may feel that our work is in vain at times, especially if we don't see our efforts bringing forth fruit. However, we shouldn't be discouraged. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again, right? Just as Jesus trusted in God to work things out, so should we. Individually, we all have a story to share about the amazing things God has done in our lives. May not all be gifted evangelists going out to all the masses, but I'm pretty sure, you know, there's one, two, three, four people that each of us can be reaching out to and sharing the good news. We can all share our personal testimony. And collectively, we all have a role to go out and spread the good news to the nations. Some will be front and center. Some might provide resources behind the scenes. Some will do work that enables it to happen behind the scenes. But we all should be praying. Just as the nation of Israel and God's servant were looked down on, and even despised by many, so we too will be looked down and even despised by some in this world. I think, uh, I don't know about you, maybe it's just me being overly sensitive or something, it just seems that more and more, if you pick up the news on a paper or on the tablet or you look on the TV, Christians are getting painted with the same brush and are being portrayed as holding society back in the dark ages. Hmm, Interesting. In Matthew 5, Jesus said this. He said, Blessed are you, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you 
and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for everything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are a light for the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people hide a lamp, sorry, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives, gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We know that everyone will face them one day. The question I leave with you this morning is this. Who will be found faithfully doing his work when that time comes? Our Father in heaven, again, we just marvel at who you are. You're so amazing. And we just thank you for your love and your grace towards us. Thank you for your word. Help us, Father, just to take that and to bury it deep in our hearts, to in our lives, we would reflect your love so that as we go out, we would show others your love and others would want to know what's driving us, that they would want to know the good news of Jesus and open their hearts to having him as Lord and Savior in their lives. And Father, we pray that nobody leaves here without Jesus this morning, that nobody leaves without having accepted his grace, his goodness, and his sacrifice for us. Father, help us all just to draw closer to you, that you would receive the honor and glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.